Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this week's episode, we catch up with Juan Benet to chat about the history of IPFS, LibP2P, and Protocol Lab's incentivized decentralized storage protocol, Filecoin. Before we start off, I want to let you know once again about our listener feedback form. A number of you have already given us some great feedback, so thank you. But if you haven't yet, please do weigh in. This feedback is so helpful to inform what the next year of the podcast should look like, so do keep it coming. I've added the link in the show notes. It's a short, anonymous questionnaire, so if you're a long-standing listener or if you're pretty new to the show, we'd really like to hear from you. Of course, you can also always keep in touch with us on Telegram, Twitter, or check out our very small but growing YouTube channel. Um, you can subscribe where you get your podcast to Zero Knowledge. We share a new episode every week. So now here's our interview with Juan Benet from Protocol Labs. All right. So in this week's episode, we have a very special episode because it's the pickup of a series that we started like two years ago. <laughs> it feels like two years ago, uh, which is decentralized storage. And we have uh, one of the main people in the decentralized storage story, uh, in my opinion, Juan Benet of Protocol Labs. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. And we have Anna with us as usual as well. Hello. So let's talk about decentralized storage, IPFS, Filecoin. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff to get into. And maybe to start out, talk a little bit about you, how you got involved in the space, what your history in this story is. Yeah. So I started computer science and in that period, I'd been a, an admirer of a lot of the peer-to-peer -peer technology of the kind of first wave peer-to-peer. -peer. So this is uh, everything like BitTorrent and Skype and things like that. And uh, in studying computer science and distributed systems, it always occurred to me that there wasn't enough attention paid to these peer-to-peer -peer distributed systems that achieved massive scale with relatively few resources. And there was something off always about them in that they were able to achieve this great scale out of these you know, kind of ad hoc networks but never really were able to get past certain thresholds of, of reliability in some cases, or um, I would rely on, on kind of freeloading on a bunch of resources from, from peers in, in very well-connected environments, but without kind of compensating that, that usage at all. Right? So when you think about things like Skype um, as using the bandwidth of, of a bunch of people around the planet, especially people with really good connections, that, that kind of like web went uh, sort of uncompensated. And so it always seemed to me that um, if you could actually apply markets uh, to the problem, that could be a much better better setup. And so that was early on. This was kind of before Bitcoin. And then after Bitcoin and, and the cryptocurrency movement started, that sort of coincided with some other work I was doing around data set distribution and things like that. And I started kind of uh, thinking through, uh, I was kind of designing a file system that, that um, was meant to work kind of like BitTorrent and Git. So it's imagining kind of hash-linked Merkle trees uh, and being able to distribute that uh, in a peer-to-peer -peer way. And... At the time, it, now that Bitcoin was out and, and we're finally getting cryptocurrencies because cryptocurrencies have been trying to be a thing for a very long time and not being able to break through uh, and actually become adopted. And Bitcoin was finally reaching that, that scale. So it became possible to say, hey, what if you could just uh, use the, the same kind of incentive structures to, to power a network, network like this? 
Uh, so that was sort of the the um, genesis of uh, IPFS and Filecoin as kind of sister projects. And there was a very explicit choice to separate the two because they they layer very cleanly in that one should be kind of the, the mode of addressing and distributing the actual data, uh, and the other should be the way to actually incentivize the, the distribution and, and have all the mechanisms for, for doing that. Yeah. And I think IPFS came way earlier too, right? Like that's that's many years in the making. Yeah, so um, IPFS started in, in you know, kind of like late 2013, 2014. And yeah, uh, and then, you know, Falcon proper in 2016, 17. Uh, the idea for it was was around in 2014, and uh, the first version of of the design was was out then, but kind of took a uh, a detour and building out all of IPFS and, and then Lib2P and things like that before kind of coming back to Filecoin. Um, I think people forget just how difficult the entire peer-to-peer space is, um, and so we've been, yeah, just creating a whole stack of of systems that's actually able to compete in performance and quality with normal centralized services. Right? There's there's about a decade and a half of, of uh, optimization applied to centralized cloud s- systems that all of this world has to compete against, uh, and that is uh, incredibly difficult uh, work to do for the entire the entire um, ecosystem. And so, that's reaching that level of quality requires solving a whole bunch of problems across the the stack. Everything from how do you do better connectivity, how do you do um, more efficient uh, encryption, how do you move to transports like Quick, to you know all the way to how do you do Better content routing and, and distribution of content. To then, you know, how do you better address uh, all this information and deduplicate? To then, how do you provide solid mechanisms for uh, sound mechanisms for incentivizing the people to actually store your data and, and distribute it? The, the creation of IPFS was that done like the way you described it is more like a decentralized space. But was it also done with blockchain projects in mind, or was it a more general project? Was it was it really for everybody? Yeah, it's a it's a more general project. I mean. The, um, it's kind of based on the same similar data structure, right? So it's it was much more Git inspired than say blockchain inspired. Okay. Uh, but at the same time, it was it was these are the same ultimately the same primitive gives you both. So uh, being able to link two data structures with with a hash as a, as a link uh, gives you the ability to have authenticated data, and and especially allows you to kind of chain these data structures in, into these long, very large uh, uh, large tree structures that then give you. Um, verifiability across the entire thing. And so that's an extremely valuable, powerful property. And so the same kind of thing. So this content addressing uh, thing give us things like BitTorrent and Git and and Bitcoin. Uh, and then now like the entire crypto decentralization movement. It's a very incredibly powerful primitive. Um, mm. And so that's, IPFS is based on, you know, building a, a traditional uh, computer science oriented file system with us, with that idea. I want to talk a little bit about IPFS and and a little bit what it is, where it came from. Maybe talk about some use cases before we move on to some other stuff. Um, so, IPFS, interplanetary file system, if I'm correct. Yeah. P2P file system. You just described it a little bit. It's content addressed. It's P2P distributed. But there's also like a bunch of other things that you can do. You can pin content, which means like I'm you know, responsible or like I say, I'm going to rehost whatever someone else is hosting. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's still like hosted by a person. It's not uploaded to a cloud or anything anywhere. So if we just break it down a little bit, how how does IPFS work on, you know, starting from a networking layer? Yeah, so the, the content model of IPFS is something that often, yes, it's a bit misunderstood. It, it follows a, mo- a model similar to Git um, in that if you have some content and you 
add it to your IPFS node locally. You now just have it in your node and that's it. But you're now making it available to other people in the, in the network uh, to request from you. Uh, if other people are interested in it and you, if you give a link to other people uh, with the, the hash of this content, then they'll be able to fetch it from you. And in the future, we'll have some kind of policy structure to be able to decide whether or not you give it to a, a certain person. But so far, that hasn't been kind of high in the priority uh, request list. And then at that point, once you've distributed the content to another party, uh, now they have it as well. And so you could leave the network and that same exact content would continue to be shared. So, that, so the big thing here is say, what if you had the web, but where the address that you go to to find the content is not a location, like it's not a specific computer that somebody runs, but it's actually just the identity of the file, right? So this, the content address of the, of the file. And then anybody, any computer that has the content could serve it to you. Uh, and so the, you know, at the beginning, you add content to, to your node, it stays locally uh, once other people start requesting it and then it starts spreading through the network. Uh, now, people could decide to keep it around or delete it and so on. And so if nobody's interested in the content, it'll disappear. If people are interested in the content and interested in keeping it around, then it'll just naturally stick around and people will serve it. What What is the default config here? Because I remember that it's like a caching structure almost like you, it, once I requested it once, my system just by default keeps it around for whatever, two days, and then it gets automatically deleted. Yeah, I think the defaults right now are that if you pull it, you cache it, but it's not pinned. So pin, pinning here means I'm flagging this content to stick around in my in my node, uh, and I want to keep it through kind of garbage collection, right? So when you, when you view something and you download it, uh, you have it locally. If you don't pin it, explicitly, then the next time garbage collection happens, uh, it'll get deleted. And then that garbage collection happens. Um, it's basically triggered by running out of space. There's like some space allocation okay. um, that yeah. the node has. And so it just keeps things around. It caches them until you you need to get rid of them. I see. But I mean, even this cache, even if you said that, you know, the content is only around for 24 hours, if we're talking about a website like Facebook that's requested thousands of yeah. times per second, then um, you're, it's basically never going to be allowed to leave the cache. Yeah, exactly. And just sticks around. And all of those thousands of requests don't have to go out to some other machines, like they can just operate locally and potentially offline, right? So you could, one, one of the benefits here is that once you have the content, um, if you have all of the content related to a website or an application or something like that, you can actually disconnect from the rest of the network and continue operating on that content just the same, right? So the, the experience is a little bit, it's pretty cool where you can be looking at a, at a web page uh, on your browser, like a, like an actual app, uh, like normal HTML5 web app, and be just working with it and disconnect from the rest of the world and continue working it just fine, and then kind of connect again, right? And I think that's that's how the whole distribution model works. Going back to this like earlier decentralized series, we had talked about like BitTorrent and this like. I, and we might have even answered this question or asked this question, but it was this idea of like breaking down content or storage data into smaller pieces and sharing them across. IPFS doesn't do that, right? Like this it does, is like it, it does. So the, oh, it does. Okay. Yeah. So the way it works is that we call this uh, chunking. So whenever you have files or a large uh, database or something that usually is represented by some internal data structure, and so in the case of normal files, uh, which are kind of this long sequence of bytes, your operating system is uh, splitting that up into little chunks, and then there's some tree structure around it. Now, when you upload that somewhere, 
that tree structure doesn't go along with a file. It just goes, it's just a long sequence of bytes moves, moves through. Yeah. In, in IPFS, what we do is we chunk that and create this, this tree around it and with this index. And so each chunk is some fixed size, some small size. And all of, all of these little bits um, are put into a tree. And that whole tree now represents your file. So when you request a file from me, you first look at the, at the root. You, my link to this file will be like the root of this whole tree structure. And when you start trying to view it, you'll first request that node. And then you'll go down and traverse down to the first block, get that. And, and now you can start viewing the file. And then you fetch the rest. So this lets you do things like immediately get the first few bytes and start displaying those in an authenticated way um, and then send the rest. Because uh, the problem with, with only sending a large thing is that if you only send like the large file, then you can't view it until you've downloaded the whole thing and you've mm. authenticated the because you have to verify the hash, right? So if you if you only have one hash for like say a gigabyte file uh, or even a megabyte, you have to download that megabyte or gigabyte before you can check the hash and then you can you can display it. So if you chunk it instead, you can start doing it incrementally. And also gives you fast seek. So like you you could fetch the first part of the file or the middle or or some some specific spot without having to get everything. But is it still like would all of this data still sit with one quote unquote client, like one person, one computer? Yeah, I mean, so I guess the question here is like in BitTorrents, the way this gets downloaded is each you can fetch each chunk from individual peers. Like if you have a hundred chunks, you can connect to a hundred peers and download one off each person. Yeah, and, and with IPFS, you also have. Uh, so we tend to think of this as random access. So um, a lot of the IPFS work has moved us into data structure land and programming language land. I'd like to dive into that a bit, but you can think of each of these chunks as having a hash associated with it. And we call it a CID, so a content identifier, because it's a hash and a little bit extra information. And so each of these chunks, whether it's like a tiny little leaf or one of these intermediate nodes in the tree or the root or something like that, all of those chunks are individually addressable. And so you can have random access into any part of all of the data. And so what this means is that if I have, say, a large directory with a lot of files in it, and I have an FFS, and I share a single file with you. Now you copy that one file over, uh, and you can have a different directory with a bunch of files, but that subpart is the same, and so we are both um, distributing that subpart together. So if some, if uh, another person tries to get that file as well, then it can, they can get them from either you or me. So then is it very, very similar to like a BitTorrent-like structure, or is there a difference? Like the chunks that you describe, are they different than whatever the breakdown would be in a BitTorrent? Yeah, they're different. So, so BitTorrent chunks things kind of it, it, it takes a large file and it then chunks it in with the same size and then it treats all of these little things as pieces and then you can move around uh, these pieces and then kind of assemble the whole thing uh, in FFS we think of it much more as a as the tree structure of a file inside of a file system and that data structure gives you uh, the ability to have like seek into this so you don't have to download the whole thing you can just seek into a, a part of it. And it also gives you the ability to update this thing. Um, so you can think of how a file mutates over time. So you can have one version of the file and then you go and change the middle or something. And then, so the new data structure is only going to have a few parts of it changed, like only the middle block and then the, the path, the, the nodes all the way going up to the root. And so you can have these different versions and you can think of it as uh, sort of version controlling all of this data. Uh, cool. Where this gets really cool is when you start applying this to other things and files. So, for example, if we if we go look at other kinds of things that are not files for a moment, and we think of say uh, CRDTs or or um, 
just any kind of database where you have some uh, set of objects that are linked to each other um, and you start applying this hash linking to them, uh, then you can distribute all that stuff with IPFS. And so including blockchain. So for example, we have, you can move around blockchains with IPFS with and, and address all of those uh, individual blocks or transactions or you know all that stuff with the same kind of link. So you can have native browsing of a blockchain in kind of like a file system path-oriented notation and look at it through your web browser uh, just natively. On what? IPFS. You just mentioned CRDT. I actually don't know what that stands for. Uh, a CRDT is a conflict-free replicated data type okay. or a um, convergent replicated data type. A couple of names for it. It stands for it. CRDTs are these data structures that give you the ability to, to represent data in multiple devices, so in multiple computers, and allow updates to both uh, in both places that converge over time. So, for example, say if you if you're editing a document in something like Google Docs uh, and you're making some edits and somebody else is making some edits at the same time, you, you can both have a consistent view of the document and then send your updates to each other. And the data structure backing the document is designed to converge. So all of the updates are going to be applied in the exact same way. There's not going to be a conflict. Um, and so we can both type at the same time, and we're both going to arrive at the exact same thing. Mm. So Google Docs doesn't use CRDTs. They use an older thing called an operational transform. Um, but CRDTs are effectively like the next generation version of that line of work. So... Cool. You can take these data structures um, that can be used for for these kinds of like real time collaborative applications, and just put all of those on top of IPFS. Um, so things like an Etherpad style thing. That's cool. This is something that like a user would actually notice. Like you, you yeah. as a sort of maybe even non technical user of something like this would actually see the benefits of this thing. Um, you just started to talk about like the way that IPFS and blockchains are used together. So you you gave this one example, but are there other examples? Like, because I I mean IPFS is I hear it const I hear it constantly being cited as like the thing that's being used to deal with storage. But I bet there's so many ways in which it could be used. There are a bunch of different ways to use it. So one way is probably this is one of the number one uses for um, things surrounding blockchains. People will have some application that relies on a contract associated with a blockchain and it'll need to address some data and that data might be a file or it might be a website or something like that and so they'll take that file or that website or whatever and put it into ipfs generate a single hash for that because it's it represents some tree and then now they can put that hash into a contract and so it provides uh, the ability to kind of accumulate information and make it accessible or be able to operate on it inside of a contract. Now, a contract right now today can't pull data out of IPFS and, and operate on it. And that's what kind of where, where Pathwin is headed. But that's kind of one of the use cases um, at the moment, just being able to kind of address uh, information. The other use case is if you have a web app this way, you can then put the code that interacts with the blockchain inside of that application in IPFS. So now you can have a dApp that moves around the IPFS network um, that interacts with the blockchain through some kind of API. Interesting. But this would be like the front-end code. This wouldn't be the yes. anything. It's just sort of interacting, like you said, interacting with the It blockchain. could be the front-end code. Or, I mean, when you think of something like a chat application, um, you don't need more much of a back-end. Uh, you only need to distribute the information. So if you, as long as we can both find the log of content, then, then that's all we need. So I can have a chat application, which is just the front-end, you can have a chat application, which is just a front end. We can 
find each other in the network. And once we find each other and are interacting, then we replicate the content to each other and, and, and that's it. And that's all we need. Uh, now, of course, if we both delete our applications, then uh, then we've lost the data. I want to talk a little bit about networking. So IPFS, as far as I know, uses Kademlia to find content. I guess it uses a DHT to find peers. Yep. But all of this is kind of tied together in something called libp2p. Where did libp2p start? Did it start before IPFS or like through through IPFS or something else? Yeah, so... um. Lipidopy was extracted out of IPFS and it was kind of sort of the uh, lower level uh, networking stack from IPFS. And kind of the idea for it started very early on. So as I was starting to make IPFS, um, it was pretty clear that all of the problems in the networking side that we were going to have to solve were pretty general and pretty applicable to a lot of other peer-to-peer systems. And there wasn't a really solid peer-to-peer library out there that we could just rely on and use. Um, and so we said, hey, like, we'll just have to build it. We'll just have to write this thing and then eventually kind of turn this into a library. And in 2014, I think it was 2014, maybe 15, I was talking to Gavin and Vitalik when they were building Ethereum. And this was like before Ethereum uh, had launched. And they were running into it, like going to have to write all this peer-to-peer code. Uh, and at the time we talked about like, hey, maybe you should just look at extracting this stuff and, and kind of form some common standards and then write the same library. And that way we can just reuse the same stuff. And they sort of handed this problem off to somebody who was working on the networking stack at the time. And then it, due to like, I think timelines and so on, just didn't match up. And Ethereum ended up using that idea to then form dev P2P. I think at the beginning they were calling it libp2p as well. And I was like, wait, hold up. Like now we have a name conflict. It's not the same library anymore and they're not gonna interrupt. And now we have a name conflict. So they renamed it to dev P2P. Ah. Um, but it was kind of a, like a missed opportunity. And we all saw that as a, as a big loss in that we should have just made that the same thing from the get-go. Yeah. I think it was pretty recognized at the time too that the P2P was a trade-off, exactly like you say, to ship something faster, where they kind of went, we don't need to be completely generic. We don't need to be completely backwards compatible or forwards compatible. Like we'll just ship something and then kind of make it specific. Yeah, the pressures to ship something uh, on time are, are strong. And so I think it was probably the right the right call at the time. But the good news is now uh, with Ethereum 2, uh, Ethereum is now on Lip2P, right? So, and, and I think the needs of Ethereum 2 are much broader and greater than than for Ethereum 1. And so they're going to need a lot of the facilities that Lip2P now has. Uh, and of course, it's been years of maturing for Lip2P as well. So um, probably the stack that was there at 2014 was uh, a shadow of what we have now, and uh, and now we have something like is actively used in a whole bunch of projects, live blockchains, uh, and so on. Uh, LibP2P is a library. Um, is it finished? Is it something that's constantly still being worked on? How does like how does a library like this exist? Yeah, so it, it, it is definitely constantly being worked on, and um, there's a lot that we have left to do there. In that, um, it, it, it's a library designed to be super modular, where it kind of breaks down uh, components by problem. So one problem might be transports. And so there's a whole bunch of different networking transports that you might want to use. And ideally, your application shouldn't be dependent on any one of them and should, be, should all be pluggable. And so things like TCP and uh, UDP and Quick and WebSockets, like all these things, Bluetooth and so on, should all be full kind of similar interfaces. And you should be able to like run your application over any of these. So they kept sort of abstracts out all of the transport code. 
Uh, then there's other stuff like peer route. We call it kind of peer uh, routing, which is I'm part of a network and I'm going to maintain some information about other parties in the network. And I'd like to be able to find a specific party in the network. And so having the ability to search for a party and find them and then be able to establish a direct connection, that's sort of the peer routing problem. And uh, there's a few different solutions for that. One of them is Kademlia, which is a, yeah, a, a particular DHC uh, that gives you sort of login steps to find uh, another, another peer. Uh, we also have things like peer discovery, which is a similar problem, but different, where I just want to find out about ambient peers in the network where I may not be interested in finding a specific peer, I just want to find peers that are maybe interested in the same content that I'm interested in, or interested in, or maybe they're in the same location. So maybe they're around my device. And so being able to discover peers like that um, is, is a useful thing. And the thing about peer-to-peer systems is that usually there's a whole bunch of different ways of doing these things, like finding peers or connecting to them or finding content. So content routing is another one of these problems. What happens is people will build an application and they'll try to solve like all these problems at once. So they have to do peer discovery and peer routing and content discovery and content routing. And because of time, they'll pick like one solution that works fairly well for their application, but kind of breaks whenever you take that application into some other context. Got it. Um, and what's going on really is that you need to break that apart and say, no, really like depending on how you want to use an application, you might have to use different systems and different solutions to solve each of these problems. So, for example, a DHC is not a great peer routing or content routing solution at certain scales. It's just too slow. Uh, you might want to use something else or certainly won't work inside of, um, say, a data center. There you would really want something much faster like PubSub or something like that. And so uh, Loop2P allows you to write your application against these kind of problem interfaces and then be able to swap out the underlying mod- modules to, to sort of fit, fit the problem uh, and fit the domain in which you're deploying the application. It's definitely not a, a project that's ever done, <laughs> it's, as, as you said. Like there, there's yeah. an infinite amount of work. There's also like currently even quite a lot of problems with libp 2 p just in terms of also like not even technical problems, but like misuse problems. Like yeah. Substrate uses libp 2 p We wrote the Rust libp 2 p library, and then and in writing that. We definitely accidentally merged uh, testnet DHT with the uh, IPFS DHT several yep. times. <laughs> I remember and, that. <laughs> and uh, then, and like this is a common thing where, like, when you deal with networking normally, you kind of go, "If I can connect to you, I have to like be your peer and be able to talk to you." So you kind of make that assumption really early on that if I can connect, then you're my peer. But in I in libp2p i can very well connect to you because everything is like generic and i can connect to anyone for any blockchain network or any other network uh, but you may not be my peer because you're you live on a different blockchain or you live on a different system entirely yeah uh and one of the things here is where we want to work on is how do you make it easy to make those kinds of connections across these systems in a way that's not gonna be problematic right so for example, if you connect to a peer and there's an IPFS peer, right now that peer is going to like try to connect on a number of protocols that you might not speak. Uh, so, for example, a uh, an application on Substrate or a blockchain on Substrate connecting to an IPFS peer, the IPFS peer will like try to run this bit swap protocol and it just will break and then the connection will break. But for example, the IPFS peer could be smarter and say and first inquire like, oh, do you run this thing? And if not, then don't try that. But then they could be stay connected. Uh, and the cool thing there is that we might be able to share things like 
peer routing or other kind of subsets of the of the architecture. Um, we're running into this uh, very much in um, in Filecoin land. So we're uh, looking at having a whole bunch of different set of, of peers, like IPFS peers and Filecoin peers, where, so uh, think of a Filecoin peer as being an IPFS peer that also runs the, the Filecoin suite of protocols, but not all IPFS peers are going to run run those. So a Falcon peer needs to be able to connect to any any random IPFS peer, but it might not speak all of the protocols that Falcon speaks. Uh, and so you, you're you're able to now connect these like different heterogeneous groups together, but but you have to be, uh, as you say, like much smarter about the use there because uh, otherwise it's it's gonna like be a, a kind of a bad peer situation to be like, um, you know, connecting BitTorrent to IPFS randomly or something like that. But, it, but this this kind of thing could make interop across blockchains much easier because you could start sharing things like blocks and start writing protocols that are cross-blockchain in, in a pretty simple way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one, the sort of ideal bridge between blockchains, if you're t talking in a bridging model, is that each of the blockchains has a like client to the other. <clears throat> but that obviously then requires that they can connect as a like client to that other network. So yep. currently, I don't think anyone really attempts to do that in, in a proper networking style. They just kind of rely on some relayer to relay information into kind of a shell of a like client on the other side. Yeah, I think right now there's, yeah, there's these shells and then they use, um, yeah, or sometimes I've seen people run programs that just run two full nodes completely independently. And it's just this really silly thing where like they're connecting. I've seen applications that, that mix two different chains and they have like the same set of peers that are now running two different full nodes and they're maintaining the same similar sets of connections. So There's a totally duplicated work all over the place. Yeah. Um, just because that's easier to do today. Um, we've just talked about IPFS. We've talked about libp2p. Both of these live under some kind of overarching structure or company, an organization. And we actually haven't talked about that organization. Is it, is it a company, Protocol Labs? Yeah, so um, Protocol is a company that started um, starts and supports these projects, but um, the projects themselves are sort of beyond the company in, in a sense that they're completely open source. Uh, all the IP, uh, anybody can use any of it, and they have pretty open communities where there's a lot of contributors to these projects that are not not part of Protocol Labs. In fact, most of them have more contributors outside of Protocol Labs than inside. Right now, the core teams are still in in PL, so I think a lot of the the contribution to these uh, happens there. But for example, Liquid P, in fact, since uh, Parity built the Rust uh, implementation at that point, there was a, a Go team in, in PL, a JavaScript team in PL, and then a Rust team in Parity. Um, and that was suddenly, you know, a third of the project uh, was now in a different organization. And then now with uh, Ethereum 2, I think there's five more implementations somewhere uh, in, a, in, in a bunch of different languages. Uh, and so now this, those are all different organizations. And so we're... We're thinking right now through how to steward the, the protocol over time, um, the set of protocols in the to where we kind of like, what is like the right structure for this long term uh, in that, you know, people want to make changes and so on, whether it should be a foundation or something like that, like some, some kind of light structure mm. to, to kind of keep changes uh, on it separately. But yeah, uh, the, the kind of the company that uh, funds all this work and, and grows, uh, has been growing these, these protocols is a company that started uh, Protocol Labs and we're, Aiming, we'll have a number of different projects in in the Web3 space, and so we we are um, looking at a, a a number of different things uh, from networking to file distribution to you know incentivized uh, file storage to just broader research into the into the underlying 
uh, cryptography. So now we have three full research teams looking at different parts of, of the whole stack. So we are now kind of driving some of the work in, in some of the, the cryptography, like the underlying low level cryptography in, um, use across blockchains, um, both in, in some of the, uh, zero knowledge proofs, uh, work and in these proofs of replication, which are, which is a, a type of proving system that we invented, uh, a couple of years ago and, uh, have been, and that field sort of took off and has been developing with a number of other, other groups contributing constructions. And we do a bunch of consensus work. So, uh, consensus is one of these things where right now all of the blockchains are heavily rate limited by the consensus throughput. Um, and we see that as a, as a major area of, of exploration. And, and so the Falcon consensus, for example, is, is a thing that's going to be pretty, like very similar to other consensus protocols, but pretty different in, in, in a bunch of key ways. Um, and, you know, we're pretty excited to boot that up. Uh, like right now you can look at the, at the devnets that we have running and it's, it, it's a protocol that has, for example, many blocks in the same round. So, so different from other blockchains, we have, um, yeah, we have a different like linking structure. Uh, and so all of that work is, is all of this research around, uh, all this crypto and distributed systems is done. Um, yeah, within, within protocol apps. Cool. I think it's a very aptly named company. Thanks. Protocol Labs. Yep. <laughs> yeah. People ask like, what do you do? I'm like, well, we, uh, we experiment with protocols. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to like, you kind of add the seed and then let it grow outward. Yeah, exactly. The, the long-term goal is to, is to, um, be a place where we can just drive a bunch of breakthroughs in computing and maybe start and grow projects that over time kind of take on a life of their own and, and are going to go larger. We as a company are super collaborative. We work with a number of other, other groups. We have a number of, of, of things we work on with Parity and, and other people in, in other organizations in the Web3 space, uh, and also other orgs outside of the Web3 space. And we, um, all of the stuff we make is, is open source. And we have like this, this strong, um, we call it the default open pledge. So we, we did some legal work here to, to create a structure by which all of the stuff we make is by default open source. And mm-hmm. so if you, and we have like a different IP agreement with, with, uh, people where we either, uh, guarantee, we, we like either file no patents or the only defensive things that are guaranteed to be defensive only. And so it's a very like different IP structure than most tech companies. And so, um, a lot of people come to work with. Cool. Well, let's talk now about like kind of a flagship project. I don't know if you'd call it that, but something that you're definitely very well known for, um, Filecoin. Great. You mentioned it a few times, but I think we should totally jump into it. We've never really talked about this on the podcast. We hinted at it back when we did this decentralized storage uh, series, but we really didn't dig into it. So I'd love to hear from you how you describe it today. Yeah. um, Filecoin is a decentralized storage network, and it mixes... um, a storage power-based consensus with a decentralized market. So the way it works is that it's a blockchain where, so think of it as a proof-of-work blockchain where the work involved is not hashing, but it's storing useful data. And so that's a, a really important difference. It means that the incentive structure for, for uh, having power in the network and producing blocks is directly tied to how useful the network is and how much useful storage the network is providing. And so that lets us then use useful storage and kind of provide it in, in a market and kind of let clients and miners uh, interact and, and have data stored. So clients come to the network and ask miners to store their data um, and then agree on a, on a fee structure 
and then you know send the data over the miner now holds onto the data and uh, keeps it over time and the protocol is designed to prove that over uh, over the duration of the deal so say a client makes a deal with a miner for a particular duration of time say um, six months or a year or something like that and then the miner is now holding onto that data for that duration of time and if they stop storing it then then Platform will detect that and and be able to get, um, kind of penalize the miner, as you have an incentive structure that uh, that and certainly stop paying the remainder of the of the fee. And then we're also working on on things like repair on top of this, where like you're able to detect the failure and correct it. But that's that's sort of going to come from that later. Going back to uh, time pressures and shipping and so on. Uh, this is repair is a, an extremely interesting part of the the whole equation. That's we're going to be shipping the network first and then kind of bringing on repair online uh, after the fact. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a really exciting project. Project we have been we probably ended up pushing the frontier of, of blockchains in a bunch of different ways. So proof of replication, as I mentioned earlier, is like a this proving system to verify that you actually have the content and you're not cheating. So there's a very hard problem there with in these these systems where um, you know how do you prove to the network that you're indeed storing something and not just lying about uh, about that. And this especially gets hard if you can pretend to be the client too, right? So if, if there's an incentive for for storing data, um, then I can pretend to be a client, hire myself, and then just store nothing. Or like, uh, and so how do you how do you actually solve that problem? It's a very interesting question that that took a, a long time. It's so one of the interesting problems. Others include things like this higher throughput consensus and and so on. Um, but at the end of the day, it's all about taking all of the unused storage on that planet and organizing it with incentives to build the largest, most powerful computing storage network and, you know, kind of drive the prices for it down. So, I mean, you, I think you've heard this uh, concern many times before, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. So when you say useful storage, a red flag is raised in my mind because the point of consensus, uh, like uh, the difficulty in a consensus system is to increase the cost of attack. But if what you're doing is useful, then you can like amortize the cost of that. So like, let's take the, the prototypical example in this world of like saying that proof of work should be calculating uh, molecules to cure cancer. Then if I actually find the cure for cancer while doing that, then I can sell that and make tons of money, which means that my the cost of attack on the network is zero or even profitable. So there's this inherent problem that like consensus should be hard and difficult and useless so that it's costly to attack it. But you're kind of subverting that a bit by making the thing useful. I, I disagree with that. I disagree with that framing. So I think what you want is a, is a system that makes it extremely expensive to reverse something where um, at the end of the day, what you want is, and this is kind of like a very specific consensus systems like formalized consensus system question, which is how do you agree on a value? And the kind of proof of work Nakamoto consensus uh, answer is you commit power that you've spent on top of a value. So think of it like I'm going to agree and commit to value X. And in order to do that, I take value X and then I crunch a bunch of hashes on top of it. And then after I've done that enough time um, and I've spent enough work, then I produce some other value and then send it out to the network. But, but the important thing here is the consensus is achieved when you spend that work on top of that candidate value. But you could be using this work to do something else. And so there are some concerns here around 
oh, well, like, like you mentioned, you could do that anyway, but also kind of reuse this value separately elsewhere. Mm-hmm. A, I don't, I don't think we've seen an attack like that ever in, in any of these, these networks. The thing changes entirely if, if, the, if that value is within the network itself, meaning that, that data that you're storing is useful in the context of Filecoin itself, meaning it's useful to store data within Filecoin. A really key question here is, um, so for example, if, if I just wanted to make sure that you were storing a specific file, and again, you could either cheat about what the file is or, or say that you can't cheat about the specific file, but you could reuse that storage and kind of pretend to another network um, that you're storing the same file. Now, now you could be reusing reusing power, right? And so a key question here is making sure that it's unique storage spent, meaning, um, and this is sort of known as a proof of space. So proof of replication is a proof of storage and a proof of space. These are like subtly different. I'm happy to go into defining the differences here, but um, but but the point is the the space spent is uniquely spent on the Filecoin network in, in the particular chain that you're on when you sort of seal a sector. So there's these units of data in Filecoin called sectors. And so when you seal a sector and you commit it to the chain, um, you're you're committing all of that work, and you're, it's a huge amount of work uh, spent on that particular value, and that adds that in, in order to like go against that, you would have to do that particular work. Uh, there's also this added, added layer here, which is, it's not just any hashes now. Now you have to have that specific data. So so this this uh, potentially makes it harder in, in other ways, which is that if you can't, like if you were trying to long range attack the network, so in the proof of stake, you, you would have to like go and buy keys. In proof of work, you, you, would, you could always do it because it's just hashes. But in Filecoin, you would actually have to get that specific data and, and go and replicate the specific same sectors and that's way harder. Yeah. So not only do you have to buy keys, you have to like acquire the specific bits of information. So you'd have to replicate a huge, vast amount of, of storage. Yeah, I guess the the and the short answer to the question is it's proof of useful work, but uh, you've taken steps to ensure that it is only useful to Filecoin. <laughs> yeah, at least for when it comes to ensuring the consensus um, uh, as used for the consensus. Um, yeah, only only for that particular chain. So if Alcoin forks, for example, over time, your storage will have to be committed to one of the chains and not the other. There's also another aspect to this, I suppose, which when we talk about proof of useful work in the proof of work context of like running an AI model or whatever people propose, it's this idea of like you you grind out more power on top of something to like back that thing. And you have to do that in perpetuity because there is no finality in Nakamoto consensus. But you do have finality, if I understand correctly. Yeah, we, we basically declare finality at a particular height. So and, and so this is this is uh, this is based on like on like a different opinion about what's really going on with proof of work. So let me start with by saying First off, if a proof of network backed chain forked massively, meaning like a, like imagine that with Bitcoin tomorrow somebody uh, produced a chain that went all the way back to Genesis, but it was completely different, like a completely different trace of of transactions that had more work on it. Now the proof of work kind of maximalist camp would say, take that chain, that's like the the one true chain. Forget this other chain that we've been using for ten years. Now the uh, like rational economy. Maximalists would say, uh, absolutely not. We are going to keep the Bitcoin chain that represents all our transaction history for the last 10 years because the proof of work is only securing an economy. It's not like special onto itself. Like we're not interested in the proof of work. We're interested in the economy. So there's like a deeper level consensus protocol that's kind of a social meta consensus there that is 
agreeing on what the the real thing is. And and the proof of work is only giving you kind of intermediate security when you don't want to invoke this like deeper, harder, more expensive social consensus layer. Uh, and so I kind of describe this as like Twitter Byzantine agreement in that if people disagree on the chain, they're going to like yell about it on Twitter until they now agree on the new chain. And then we're going to switch all their code to point to the new chain. Uh, and so if you take that as, as kind of like the, the baseline backdrop to all of these protocols, that um, at the end of the day, there's parties agreeing on what economies they represent uh, and agreeing to set certain parameters to kind of choose a particular chain and will ignore other chains that are kind of by protocol more powerful or longer or whatever. Uh, then you actually get to define rules that work very well within that, those constraints and say, hey, um, you can come up with a reasonable bound and say something like two weeks or even a month or potentially three months is a timeline after which the economy will not want to change its its history. And so you can declare finality at that point and, and have a, a UX that says, if you find another chain that's longer or more powerful, that's that's forking from further back, you don't want to be on it. You you actually want to stick to this one. Uh, and it's kind of a very explicit choice in the consensus protocol. Uh, the other thing is like you can also calculate like the probability of that outcome being happening. And it can be, you know, you can also draw finality at a particular height where you sort of declare it an extremely unlikely event. Uh, so you can apply both of these, these mechanisms and sort of force finality. Now, it could be that due to a hard fork or uh, some problem, like maybe your your country shuts down the internet on you for five days or something like that, you get you fork off for some reason and you might need to kind of recover manually. And, and that's totally okay. I think in, in those circumstances, you do want to know that you fork. You do want to get the user to decide what economy they want to hook back into. This is so, it's so different, this way of thinking about the, just going back to this proof of useful work or useful, unique work somehow. So what is it exactly? What is the, like, it's not proof of work and it's not proof of stake. Like what is, you sort of mentioned proof of replicability, but is that the... Yeah, replication. Yeah, so, so that's the, um, so like these, these things called proofs of storage, which are simple proving systems to prove that I, I have possession of, of some data. So... Proof of storage is like a larger class. And so one example might be a proof of data possession where we agree on some data X and then I can prove to you that I, that I have data X without even revealing X. Um, or, or certainly revealing X would be like the simplest proof. I, I, I have X. I'll prove it by just giving you X. Uh, but of course you might want to do something much smaller. You know, if, if X is like a, a few gigabytes large, you only want to, you, you want to do something else. So then there's proofs of retrievability, where not only am I going to prove that I have X, but I also want to make it so that these proofs that I'm giving you can be used to reconstruct X in case that um, that I'm malicious and I want to withhold X from you. Meaning, like you don't want to be in a situation where I'm proving that I have X, but I refuse to give it to you. Uh, so proofs of space are a different type of proof where I can just guarantee to you that I've that I'm spending a certain amount of of, of storage space. So, uh, for example, I, I commit to, to say that I'm going to store a gigabyte and I generate a random gigabyte and then I can prove to you that I'm storing that random gigabyte and that I'm not storing some other, some other thing. And so that lets you use storage space as a proof of work. Uh, so in, in a sense, like you can, you, you can count on that storage being unique. Uh, so now the interesting part is combining a proof of space with a normal, uh, you know, proof of data possession where I would like X to be useful, not just a random string. Mm -hmm. And so the, the hard part of this was to create a proof of space that was 
also being used to store useful data. And so that's what proofs of replication are. Are there actually different, like, I guess the question here is like, are these different activities incentivized differently? Are they different roles? Yeah, so, so these all come from, these are like deeper level primitives than, than all these incentives. Okay. The um, cryptographic primitives that, that, um, that give you like this, this proving system. So a proving system is like this cryptographic protocol where it's a very simple idea, which usually says there's a prover and a verifier, and the prover is going to prove something to the verifier. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the very, very general case. And so proof of work is, is that the prover is going to prove that the prover has done some work mm-hmm. to the verifier, usually some amount of work. Like the, the prover has spent a certain amount of resources, uh, like, a, like a certain amount of like computational cycles. Uh, and so I, the classic example is hashes, right? So I can prove to you that, um, that I've done a thousand hashes. Or another proof might be uh, a verifiable delay function where I, I can prove to you that I've, that I've spent a certain amount of computational cycles in sequence. And so I've waited a certain amount of time. And so these other kind of proofs of storage and so on are all proving systems like that, that are, that are kind of low level primitives used in a, in a whole wide variety of protocols. And a lot of these got invented to do things like spam reduction, right? So like proof of work was originally invented as a way to reduce spam on the internet, uh, on email. And then these other kind of proofs of storage systems were, were invented to kind of create clouds that, that you could trust better because they could actually prove to you that you're that they're backing up data, but no, these basically were went completely unused in the normal centralized cloud environment where like kind of trust is contractual, uh, and are now actually only being used finally in the in the whole decentralization space because this is where where we're using incentive structures to to guarantee things, not not uh, contractual agreements. So we're talking about all of these different proofs, uh, and I happen to know that there is a zero knowledge proof in there somewhere. Where is that somewhere? And like, how does that work? Uh, why is there a zero knowledge proof in there? Yeah, so we use snarks to prove some of the of the actual proofs of replication. So, so there are a bunch of different proof of replication constructions, and they usually produce uh, kind of these large outputs. And so we would like to be able to do a lot of challenges um, and proofs on these proofs of replication, um, but then aggregate them and make a succinct proof um, so that it can go on chain in a very small, compact way. And there are a bunch of different ways to do this, but snarks are, are a great way to do this. They give you a way to kind of compute the, you know, kind of prove that you've done the proofs correctly. And then you just take the, the actual snark proof and put that on the chain. And so parties can now verify uh, a few of the inputs themselves and then the, uh, the actual snark proof and then know that the other proofs had to have been generated correctly. So that's where the zero knowledge proof is. Uh, in our case, it's not actually it doesn't need to be zero knowledge. In that, uh, we don't care about the um, hidden properties uh, about the snark. We only care about the um, the fact that it's a succinct proof of of, of that computation. Yeah, it's almost uses a compression algorithm over yes. over this large um, other proof. So I don't actually know the details of of how proof of replication works, but there's this. I think it's called slow encoding or something. Yes. Um, and it produces this massive lattice-based kind of tree that is is very large. And this, the snark is basically just compressing this so it doesn't take up space on-chain. Yeah, so so we we, um, we take kind of like the source data and say that's kind of like a large um, amount of the essay, a gigabyte or 32 gigabytes. And we apply this very slow encoding that kind of produces these layers, these graphs, and it produces them in layers. 
And, and the slow part is that there's kind of a sequential thing going on where in order to produce uh, one node, like in this kind of gigabyte, you can think of a node being a 32-byte segment. And so, so think of like all the tiny little 32-byte byte segments and kind of producing a graph and kind of for each one of them hashing sequentially, which is, is a slow process that has to be uh, done uh, one after the other because of the, of the hash function. But then there are, yeah, the, these lattice uh, structures with like multiple layers of these graphs. And uh, one type of graph is a, is a DRG, a depth robust graph. And then they, they get connected with these uh, graph expander graphs. And so there's a whole like, yeah, large complicated lattice structure. And uh, at the end, we now have encoded the original data into what we call the replica. And the replica is sort of committed to a specific value. So you can take the same source data and encode it multiple times if you wanted to, and, th- th- and you would end up with multiple different replicas that are all kind of uniquely um, uniquely encoded. Uh, now that we've done that, in order to prove that we've done this encoding correctly, we have to we, we have two approaches. Either we do the entire encoding inside of OSNARC or something like that, which would be extremely expensive, or we just kind of run a few of the challenges themselves to, to show that we've proved that we have uh, stored this and kind of prove that. So we say, like, sample a thousand random challenges over this whole proof. And, and we do that computation inside of the SNARK. So we kind of, we, t- we take like the source encoded data and then we decode it. And then we also sh- show that that goes all the way back to the root that we committed it, committed to. Uh, and so it's that proof that we're making that we want to make succinct because otherwise it would be, you know, the 32 byte leaf and then like the whole Merkle chain all the way back up to the root, which would be a pretty large amount of data. So now times a thousand. That would be, you know, yeah, it would be a large number of, of um, yeah, like hundreds of kilobytes or megabytes to produce one proof. So, it, so with the SNARKs, we are able to compress that down to a few hundred bytes, things like 200 bytes or something like that. This is a use case for zero-knowledge proofs that we're seeing quite often, this idea of using it as a validity proof to kind of compress a ton of data down. We had Ariel Gabizon on the show a few months ago, and he's working with you guys. And he mentioned that you're also, I don't know if you're actually doing this, but he was looking at doing like recursion as well. So like you use zero, a zero-knowledge proof to compress a bunch down, and then you combine a bunch of zero, like snarks together and do another snark on top of them. This is a sort of recursion idea. Yeah, so, so recursive proofs are awesome. And I think right now our latest construction doesn't have recursion. Yeah, I think, I think our latest construction doesn't have recursion. Maybe it does. I, I don't know about that. Um, but because um, <laughs> we've, we've evaluated like hundreds of... So <laughs> great story about like all, all of this work. It's, it's uh, we, we call it kind of like the proof roller coaster. Like you end up creating tons of different constructions over time that have all these different uh, parameters yeah. and, and serve all these different kind of use cases. Um, and so I think like the latest construction that we're going to ship with is not using recursion, but we have... that That is like high on our uh, want-to-use uh, list because it has a bunch of different properties. So you end up with a bunch of uh, useful useful things out of that. But I guess every time you design one of these systems, you then have to go through all of the problems that are going to come up with it and then weigh, like, is will will there be ways to mitigate these problems or will they destroy the system and then also maybe decide on some trade-offs like, oh, this is going to be less efficient, but it'll be smaller. I don't know, something like that. Yeah, so, so this parameter choice over the choice of proofs in Filecoin has been probably the biggest reason it's taken us uh, so long to um, to kind of ship a lot of this stuff because you choose one construction and it has a certain shape uh, and it, it causes, say, maybe produces artifacts of like a particular size. And maybe that's fine. 
And then you kind of tweak some parameter and you say, hey, maybe like we want the sectors to be like slightly bigger. And, and, and now um, that makes some other parameter ch have to change. And so pretty quickly, you're in, in a, a very large parameter space with many different variables where you tweak one thing here and a bunch of other things have to change as well. And doing that complexity management as a bunch of these algorithms are um, getting optimized is it, pretty, pretty difficult. Um, because a lot of these constructions, these kind of slow encoding, so you want it to be slow enough to be useful for the for the proof, but but fast enough that it's not very expensive. And like dialing that just right um, is a pretty difficult challenge. And and nailing that with then the particular snark constructions on top to make sure that you can do this efficiently and again so succinctly enough that it doesn't produce too much to go in the chain. All of that parameter optimization has been so intense and difficult. That we actually have to write software to be able to deal with this. Meaning, like wow. we have a a uh, constraint solver just to be able to deal with the constraint optimization problem on produce on choosing the proof structures and the parameters in Filecoin, um, which is kind of an amazing like result out of this, where uh, <laughs> a bunch of other groups can like now use that to to make their lives e easier. But like we we have to like write this. That was actually going to be my question. If you if you're actually sharing these internal tools that you've had to create in order to even try out some of these ideas. Yeah, uh, yeah, we use a, a thing called Orient, and yeah, it's a, it's a, on GitHub. Again, everything is, is super open source, so you can go check it out. Um, it has like a special language where you define uh, a particular algorithm, and and you can think of algorithms and the artifacts that generate, and kind of composing these algorithms into larger ones. And you have like all these variables and parameters, and then you can do kind of experimental results for say how long certain hash functions take, and then you plug those that data in as, as some of the parameters. And then you kind of compute out what other parameters have to be, right? So based on like this hash function and how long it takes, say outside of a snark and inside of a snark, then like this particular construction is the one you want to use because um, it kind of minimizes some times and maybe it, like minimizes some like on-chain footprint and like all of that stuff is is calculated through this this constraint solver. I kind of think of it as like making blockchain tech right now because of of, of um, how complex the structures are, both the individual primitives and the kind of how they're weaved into a chain or like all the off-chain protocols and so on, all of that stuff is so complex that we need software to help us write software. So uh, it's kind of like chip manufacturing in a way where um, chip manufacturing was going pretty well until it hits a certain size, uh, certain kind of like density, and they then st stopped being able to produce chips manually and they had to start using software to to be able to lay out the, the chips. Wow. Uh, I think we've, we've hit that point with blockchains where the, some of the constructions that we're making, we need software to help us design. Um, and, and to check this correct, because the correctness there is the most important thing. Like if you accidentally mess up a parameter somewhere, then like the whole thing breaks. I just want to ask, this is sort of a bit of a switch away, but I want to ask if you've looked at any of the other kind of storage solutions out there especially sort of the newer ones. Like we actually had Arweave on the show. Uh, Sam from Arweave was on like, I think maybe a year ago. And like they have a very different idea around this. But I'm wondering like how does the current version of Filecoin fit with, like also there's like the older ones like Chia and MadeSafe. These are things that we had mentioned on our earlier series. Where do you see yourself fitting? Are you using kind of some ideas from those? Are you, do you see yourself as very different yeah, we, we, I think we're pretty different. I think we, um, I think there's a subset of ideas that are shared broadly, you know, like kind of like the basic, hey, you are going to hire a network. So, so some network is going to do research sharing. And you're going to hire a network to store your data. It's kind of like 
broadly broadly shared. But a, a few things are pretty different about us. So I think one of them is this proof of replication. So I think no other networks using proof of replication. They might be, start soon. Uh, this is kind of a, an advantage and edge that we have because we kind of created that field. But it's just one differentiating factor. For example, Chia is not quite letting you store people's data. The only it only is kind of like a proof of work, but a proof of like space oriented chain. We also are the I think the only one with kind of like this fluid market structure that is meant to optimize based on kind of an ask and bid structure where miners and clients are are, are supposed to be able to reason about prices together and and kind of then form deals out of that. And I think we're the only ones that are doing consensus backed by by the by useful storage. So, so I think so she has is consensus backed by just a proof of space, uh, but in our case, it's, it's useful. Yeah, I think those those are like three of the biggest differentiating factors. Then then there's of course like the tight integration through Lipter P into IPFS and a bunch of other things where there's a ton of usage on top of IPFS already. It's going to be easy to just back up all of that data straight into um, into Podlink. Cool. So you have sort of that advantage of like an already very very used system. That could be migrated. Yeah, yeah. The, the one cool thing to mention is that it, that IPFS is an open network. So um, now we've seen other other groups start to uh, build IPFS support. So I think like storage and others are like now adding uh, IPFS support, which is cool to see. Yeah, it's meant to be like a, a decoupled layer for for that reason. So to to wrap it up, I want to bring it back to some of the things that we talked about in, in those early episodes. And we we had a look at the history of P2P and we kind of concluded that P2P failed at some points. And we talked about reasons why it might have failed, like the UX was terrible. And honestly, though, like, I think one of the biggest reasons is that, you know, if if we're talking about the early internet, and it was decentralized, why was it decentralized? Well, everyone was running their own web server. Like I when I was a kid ran a web server in my house. No one does that anymore. And we're probably not going to go back to doing that. So that is where this world of incentives comes in, where I can, I don't have to run my own server to be decentralized. I can pay someone to run a server for me in in some regard, but I don't pay one single entity to do it. And my kind of ending question here is, what is possible in this new world of incentivized, decentralized storage? It's a great question. And I'll probably start by, by saying like the last, the last peer to peer summer, kind of like in the early 2000s, produced a bunch of like really good ideas, some of which succeeded more than others. So for example, I think like BitTorrent was pretty successful at a set of things. And it was kind of a pared down version of, of Mojo Nation and other things, um, that came before it. And then the group that was doing Kazaa ended up building Skype. And then the kind of resource sharing around telephony ended up being huge and and super successful until they got bought um, by companies that just didn't want to run the risk and didn't want to manage this like huge peer-to-peer network and so they switched it to be kind of run run internally so it was there are a few successes though yeah i think on the whole did not have like massive lasting impact that uh the web had or like you know the early tcp ip internet had Uh, and so yeah i think i think when it comes to peer-to-peer there's a few extremely difficult problems and one of them is yeah this this resource sharing and incentives, and I'll, I'll return to that in a moment. But I think others are simply just how hard connectivity is. So it's extremely easy to just rent a machine somewhere in the cloud and get like a publicly writable IP address and kind of like an always-on uh, system that kind of is easy to manage and so on. 
if you now have to deal with a bunch of computers that are running in who knows whose place, and they may be on or off, or you know, all all this complexity um, comes in, applications get potentially much harder to build, unless the networking stack kind of takes care of it for you. And this is what we're trying to do with things like LibidPI and IPFS, make it so that you don't have to worry about kind of reasoning about those problems. But it's still kind of like substantially uh, difficult for many use cases. I think one other one other big problem there is once you get into certain sizes of data sets for certain applications, you want to be able to run certain kinds of computation over that data. And having it sort of spread out across the world uh, doesn't line up with the goals of some of those organizations, right? Probably the the worst case of this, the worst version of this is uh, the, the centralized social networks are building this huge trove of, of personalized data that then they're running kind of all this ad optimization code on top of, right? Uh, so it's like a bad case. But a, but a good case would be, say, personal DNA or personal or, or like medical record type stuff where you, you're trying to run computation over all this data in, in like a secure, non-identifiable way for the purpose of finding important correlations between, between populations or things like that that are, like, can be useful to do better uh, medicine or bio or things like that. So, so that kind of competition gets way harder in this distributed setting. But the good news is it gets much more user controlled, right? So if, if you kind of give your data out to somebody, even in the good case here highlighted with the medical record stuff, now you've given your data out to some other party and you no longer have control of it. You, you, because you've kind of granted possession, you have a like, limited control over it. And so this is where I think the cost is, is warranted, meaning like the cost of making it harder to build these applications is warranted because of the utility of like, of, the, of that greater security that comes, that comes from it. Now, I think going back to the kind of the incentives question. Yeah. I think like the big, the big thing with, with all these research sharing networks in, in kind of like the first wave was that they were either altruistic or and kind of only scaled and worked when there was a different incentive layer, i.e. things like. BitTorrent worked really well because maybe it's one entity trying to distribute game patches or it's people trying to like, distribute material they don't want to pay for, right? So like, or it's like having a really cool library of music and wanting to show, share that. Like, I remember this with like Nutella. Like, I was proud of what I was sharing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I think like, uh, like there was like this other incentive structure around it that like allowed you to um, run that, that network. But I think once you start getting into high volumes, you encounter this this kind of diminishing return where individuals won't want to run the thing themselves. And instead, you want kind of a professionalized service. And it's in this professionalized service thing where, where you really want to use incentives. Um, and I'll, I'll make it a case like very, very concretely. So I kind of think of this as, as open services. So think of open source as a set of kind of principles and licenses and so on for groups of people to come together and contribute to kind of a shared resource that is usually kind of like a knowledge good of some sort, like a code base or say the content in Wikipedia or something like that. And that works, open source works really well for that type of good because people can come and go and they can contribute to a thing a little bit and then move on. Uh, but open source does not work very well for maintaining services in that we haven't been able to see something with like near perfect uptime and like really high throughput or something like that uh, come out of open source. Um, because kind of this volunteer oriented thing does not lend itself well to, um, you know, kind of being on 24 seven Peter duty and, uh, working hard to scale the thing for usage by users, right? So at that point, it turns into a job. Now, what's really interesting about the currencies is that they enabled the creation of a class of networks that are providing a useful service to the world, but they're doing so by hiring people with 
kind of a, an intra currency that's based on kind of like the utility of the of the of the service itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the best example of this uh, like the, is Bitcoin, where the Bitcoin network provides a service to the world of having a transaction processing system and say a store of value, and that service is like running 24/7 with like near perfect uptime, um, and it has certain transaction throughput that's probably not going to get better, but um, but certainly like it's, it's resisting all kinds of attack. A lot of people and organizations and and nation states have tried to like bring it down, and that service is definitely up, right? Like Bitcoin is is up all the time, and there are a lot of people working day and night to main, maintain it running because they're getting paid. They're basically hired by the network in a sense. And, and that's an extremely powerful thing. Uh, and this is effectively like a, a new class of thing that's that's now available where we can blend open source with economic incentives to produce an open service. And this open service thing now can run all kinds of utilities on the network. So think of the idea of a public utility as you would see it as kind of like water and gas and something like that in, in kind of like the real world. Um, now imagine that, but on the internet, to run all kinds of important services, but now being kind of an environment where even adversarial parties are working together to maintain the service, right? So this is the case with Bitcoin and, and other networks where the miners are actually highly adversarial with each other and like do not want to help each other. They're actually often fighting each other. And yet they together produce this amazing service with a fantastic uptime, right? And so like that's, that's like the power of incentives. So I think like this is where once we nail nail these these structures and nail the UX around it, then I think these are definitely going to be the way that kind of computing resources are distributed. And I think all kinds of other open source services are possible. It's just that it will probably take a while before all of this takes off. It's, I think it's very early days on this. On this, I think um, probably Bitcoin is sort of like GNU or um, Linux, and it's like one of the first precursors to a kind of like large explosion that will come. It's unclear exactly when that'll come, but I think a lot of UX and design challenges have to be solved before before these these things can really take off. This has been, listen, this has been such an amazing conversation. I hate to cut it off. I hope we can invite you back sometime and we can continue. I feel like there's all sorts of things we could talk about here. Yeah, happy to. I think another time would be would be awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This was really, really fun. Yeah, thank you very much. And I'm going to say this. Um, we've mentioned this decentralized storage series that we had started. It's a very old series. We are at a different point in our podcasting capabilities back then, but I will link it in the show notes. I think it was like the second episode we actually used this name, Zero Knowledge. So it's like very, very long ago. But um, yeah, thanks so much for helping us round it out. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Cool. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.